like scary movies? Uh-huh. I'm getting ready to watch a video. You making popcorn? Uh-huh. What's, what's, what's your favorite? Uh, I don't know. You have to have a favorite. Talk to me. Talk, talk to me. Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made. According to our guest, at least. It's also the best horror podcast for comics fans, and today's episode is no exception because our guest is the writer behind The Sickness, along with a bevy of others from The Dregs to The Age of X-Men and the upcoming Golgotha Motor Mountain, the showrunner for the Little Nightmares podcast, The Sound of Nightmares, senior writer for the game Nightingale, which hits early access February 20th, and much, much more. Please welcome Lonnie Nadler. Hello, thanks so much for having me. It's rare that I get to uh, speak unabashedly about my love for Bergman, and people will actually listen, so I'm (laughs) excited to be here. (laughs) Yes, absolutely my pleasure. Really looking forward to this. You know, don't get me wrong, I love the things that are just kind of surface what they are and, and, you know, enjoyable on those levels, but... When we get to really dig into something on this show, that's when I feel like we're at our best. So um, I'm excited to get into it as well. Awesome. So obviously horror permeates your work, but it is incredibly varied. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with the genre, where it started for you? Cool. Yeah, I feel like I get this question like fairly often and every time it's like, it like stops me in my tracks because <laughs> I don't know really where to start. Um, I was... I was into horror like pretty much since I can remember, since I was a kid. I was also really scared of everything. Like in life, my parents would take me to like skating lessons or gymnastics classes. As soon as they would leave, I would like freak out because I hated being left alone. Like this, this like notion of abandonment. Yeah. And so I guess horror, not that I knew it at the time, but was something that allowed me to cope with these feelings of anxiety. And, you know, it wasn't until later in life I realized I had, like, clinical anxiety. (laughs) So, yeah, like, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with Goosebumps, as most kids were. Hell yeah. Shouts out to RL. Yes. uh, (laughs) Are You Afraid of the Dark was, like, my life. Even video games, like, was really... I played a lot of Super Nintendo, and there was a... I think it was called Maximum Carnage. It was a Spider-Man game. For some reason, it scared the shit out of me. (laughs) But I loved it, and I had to play it in my basement. My basement scared the shit out of me. <laughs> so it was just like, I don't know, very memorable experiences. So yeah, horror's been like a part of my life, not as far as I can remember, but since I remember consuming media, it's always been horror. And I maybe stopped a bit in high school because I thought it was lame, <laughs> but that was only like two years, and then like the ring came out and stuff. And I was like fully back into You said it. we're back, baby! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that movie is so fucking good. I remember so vividly. So somebody somebody picked it for the show, and I was at an age where I was like both too scared to see it and also too young to see it when it actually came out. And so when it when some, it came up on the show and somebody picked it, I was like, surely this will not be as intense as I had heard on the on the playground. Turns out it is still fucking terrifying. <laughs> really, really incredible stuff, Verbinski. Turns out, when you have quadruple the budget, you can do something with it. <laughs> He's an amazing visualist, mm-hmm. if nothing else. Yeah, my wife and I rewatched The Ring and Ringu like one night and then the other night, and it's maybe the only Hollywood remake where I can say it like stands up with the original, yeah. but also does very different things with it. 
and just trying not to go on a tangent to start talking about the ring. <laughs> I love the scenes. Like, there's so many movies like that where when the, the person starts investigating, you get like a 30 second montage and right. figure everything out. There's like a 30 minute scene of Naomi Watts just investigating. Right. And it's like, holy shit. It's like, I feel like she's actually trying to figure <laughs> this out and I'm discovering things with her and she's smart. So, yeah, I, I really loved that part of it. Yeah, I like that they gave themselves an out, too. They were like, she's a journalist. It's fine. This can be the movie. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) But the movie we're talking about today is the 1968 classic from the surrealist Swede himself, Ingmar Bergman. It's the Hour of the Wolf. One thing I find very interesting about this movie is its pace. And you mentioned in discussing Golgotha Motor Mountain that you feel many publishers pressure artists to create very quick, bite-sized, and ultimately disposable works. And this, to me is a great demonstration of the same trend in film, ironic considering Bergman's own insistence that his films were disposable and immediate. And I'm I'm wondering if you connect with this movie partially because of that slower unfolding of the mystery. Yeah, it's it's really funny that you that's like the first thing you bring up because as <laughs> I was watching it, I was just like, God damn, this movie's got a great pace. <laughs> it's like there for the viewers who don't know, there's a scene where <laughs> Max von Sydow's character literally makes you sit through an entire minute in silence (laughs) and he's just like look how long the seconds are and that's not exaggerating one of my favorite scenes in the history of cinema because it just shows you how much control over the pacing that the director has and Bergman knows that power yeah you're on tenterhooks the whole time (laughs) yeah it's it's really incredible but I think part of it for me is Bergman was was very much, especially after his his films post Persona, before he started doing more relationship uh, focused stuff again. He was really in this wave of experimentation and finding ways to use cinema in ways that wasn't just adaptations of plays and wasn't just trying to to reach the heights of literature, but became something more like music. Yet was exclusively cinema. And I think that Hour of the Wolf is, along with Persona, is like the height of his achievement in terms of those things, where it offers an experience that can only be had in movies. And part of that is because of the way he paces it. It's deliberate. It's dreamlike. It feels like one of the first films, other than like the German expressionist wave, where they tried to capture what it's like to be a dream, where they understood cinema is very akin to dreaming and he captured it and it is a slow nightmare but it also doesn't drag yeah i find that's a very tenuous balance and no one does it as well as he does absolutely i think that you nailed it in terms of he knows how to keep it moving while also lingering in the right moments you know the scene with the young boy and ultimately the murder is is i think a perfect encapsulation of that where it's like it's a lot of them just kind of like circling each other and and really like lingering on the individual moments that help to sort of ground it and feel tangible which then again plays into that dreamlike atmosphere and sort of combats it in a way it's all just really really impressively done i think that the pacing is what makes it work it's the kind of thing where it's easy to overlook and 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 say, oh, this isn't what we're used to in terms of like what the pacing of a horror movie is like today. But I think that 
if if someone were to be like, oh, let's remake this and speed it up, that it would just be demolished. <laughs> like, it would be so, so, so bad. Yeah, totally. It, this isn't a movie you can do with, like, quickly. It, it reminds me a lot of Lynch. And I first watched this movie because I was watching this handheld capture interview of Lynch where he was giving some uh, interview at a film festival and someone asked him if he's a big fan of Bergman and he was like oh yeah Persona and Hour of the Wolf are like some of my favorite movies so that's why I watched it and when I watched it I was like this is just Lynch like yeah. he just watched Hour of the Wolf and that's his whole filmography is that mixed with mid-century Americana but yeah, it's a similar sense of pacing there with to capture that dreaminess. It can't be fast, but it also it needs to feel like you're floating through something. And it needs to keep you engaged. It can't be too slow either. Yes, because the dreams shift constantly. Right, like absolutely. And uh, so does this movie. <laughs> <laughs> so artist Jenna Cha and I discussed the Southern Gothic roots of the sickness during her episode about the Night of the Hunter. A description of Golgotha Motor Mountain that you gave was Faulkner doing an open mic night before a Slipknot show. (laughs) And parts of the surreal horror of this movie is the oscillation between narrative realism and the highly gothic story of its troubled artist and his pregnant wife who live isolated from society on an island, the other side of which houses a baron and a host of pals. So, three-part question. Is that gothic nature something you click with as well? Would you say Southern Gothic is your favorite subgenre because of its influence on you? Or is it just highly influential, not your favorite? And if so, what is your favorite subgenre of horror? Good questions. So for me, when I started writing, when I started taking writing seriously, it was something that I wanted to do. I was in university. I was a philosophy and English major. And I took as many courses in English as I could that would allow me to read early Gothic fiction. And that's obviously crossed with, you know, the the roots of gothic literature are also the roots of science fiction literature and the roots of uh, a lot of fantasy literature as well. And my whole dream as a writer was to take the tenets and tropes of classic gothic literature and to revitalize them for a modern audience. And then about four years later, when I was doing my writing degree, (laughs) someone was like, oh, have you read Flannery O'Connor? And I was like, no. And they were like, oh, I think, <laughs> I think you should probably <laughs> read Flannery O'Connor. So I did, and my world was blown wide open sure. because it was, you know, it was exactly that. It was gothic tropes and themes brought into a modern American setting as a way to look at political, social struggles in a way that was non-judgmental while still giving a spotlight to people who are generally disenfranchised and on the you know hidden end of society, so to speak. And so it, it was so influential to me that it's like if I'm writing something now that's not Southern Gothic or that doesn't like pull parts of it, my brain is like, oh shit, am I like <laughs> betraying myself by not having these elements in here? So yeah, it was really important to me to the point that the first fiction story I ever had published was like borderline plagiarism of uh, a story by Angela Carter. Angela Carter is a more contemporary gothicist. Um, and to call her Southern Gothic is like debatable, but that's how much it influenced me. And right. Still to this day, I beside my desk, uh, 
it's not here right now, but I usually keep like a copy of Flannery O'Connor's stories beside me. So yes, it is probably my favorite subgenre, but in tandem with that, I would say body horror is also really important to me. But more than that, it's and now I'm rambling, so forgive me. But no, no. Something that's important to me in horror and the work that I create is a lot of my books aren't really horror. Like, <laughs> they're not horror in the sense that, oh, there's jump scares and there's monsters that are like very typical horror monsters or slashers or whatever. To me, what's most important is creating a sense of atmosphere and a sense of mood that is unsettling and leaving the reader with that once they're done the issue or the book or whatever, which I think is something the Southern Gothic does very well. So I, I don't know, like I am a horror writer, but I don't want to mislead people into thinking <laughs> they'll read my work and like, you know, be scared shitless or, or whatever it is. I'm just like not interested in, in doing right. that. Well, I think that in that way, you are sort of aligned with that lineage of Lynch and Bergman yourself in terms of eeriness of examining the rot of a culture as opposed to like eek scary guy <laughs> yes very much and like the southern gothic is very much about the decay rot and grotesqueness of the south obviously but bergman and lynch and people like that who i look up to in a weird way it's the rot and grotesqueness of the inner self mm -hmm. and about in relationships I could write a thesis, a PhD about this, and probably get away with it in the <laughs> academic world, even if it sounds pretentious. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm right there with you. Hour of the Wolf is also interesting because it's positioned as sort of the first entry in this thematic trilogy that you mentioned where he's doing relationship stuff again with Shame and the Passion of Anna, wherein Liv Ullman and Max von Sydow are an agonized couple, as they do here, playing Alma and Johan. And Omen was indeed Bergman's partner, so these are very personal films. And after they filmed Persona in 1966, she was pregnant with his child and living on his island of Pharaoh, but decided she couldn't leave Norway, so she returns to Oslo, and suddenly, this new script shows up for her. He'd been working on it for two years under the name The Cannibals, but rewrote it to more reflect their situation, and pleaded with her to return and do this movie. And she said that she saw he rewrote this out of love, and so she returned out of love. The funny thing is, though, that the movie took long enough to film that she had to return to Oslo, give birth, and then go back once again to finish the movie with a pillow under her shirt to replicate the baby. <laughs> I also thought it was really amusing that in uh, the documentary that they made a few years, uh, or several years later, sort of looking back at it, Omen said of their dissolved relationship, I should have listened more closely to what the script was saying and stayed in Norway. <laughs> Yeah, that all checks out. I think Bergman was like, for better or worse, he's like the ultimate artist. Very tortured and uh, melancholic, obsessed with relationships and love and sex, but is also strikes me as the type of person who was very self-centered. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, I don't think we would have gotten the movie that we got if he wasn't that way, but... Yeah, I think it's pretty obvious when you start like reading about his relationships <laughs> and stuff. So the titular hour of the wolf is halfway between midnight and dawn, the hour when most people die, when sleep is deepest, when nightmares are more real. It's the hour when the sleepless are haunted by their deepest fear, when ghosts and demons are most powerful. The hour of the wolf is also when most children are born. 
This being the final point in their list, I find interesting, especially considering the context of his own impending fatherhood, which one can imagine would unlock a host of anxieties that Bergman might try to exercise through his art. Um, and indeed, as you were just sort of alluding to, this is a great example of the ascription of Bergman as sort of the prototypical romantic artist, in that his movies demonstrate a preoccupation with his own pains and an overwhelming innocence of their real source, <laughs> was uh, was the quote I saw from Vernon Young that I thought was very funny. Young said this negatively, as they didn't care to have to decipher the, quote, egotistical reflexivity. I actually disagree, and I feel that the personal element is part of what allows someone to connect with it more effectively, and in fact, more eerily. The fact that it is so reflexive makes it sort of uncomfortable. It feels a little voyeuristic, almost, from the word go. Yeah, I think Bergman's interesting in his this sense of voyeurism. It's not classic voyeurism in like the usual academic cinema terms, where Lynch is like a lot more overtly voyeuristic. But Bergman is voyeuristic in the sense of you're literally looking at his personal life right. <laughs> and <laughs> and the close-ups. He puts you so close to the characters that it's you both feel for them and feel close to them, but it's also extraordinarily uncomfortable <laughs> because seeing a face that large, especially when these were released in cinema, it's like basically the whole screen for the 90 minute runtime is 80% of the movie's close ups. <laughs> and you're just confronted with Max von Sydow's and Liv Ullman's faces. And it's, it's amazing. I think Werner Herzog said this about Bergman, that Herzog himself is obsessed with landscapes and trying to find the human in a landscape. For Bergman, it's the opposite, where he, he tries to find landscapes and he tries to find nature within the human face. And I think that very accurately summarizes like this part of Bergman's career. That's really interesting. I love what Werner is doing. And I think that that's so fascinating for him to have like identified his sort of opposite, the Nega Herzog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one more prefacy element that I want to discuss and, and that I like about the movie is that it plays into the sort of in-between aspect that defines the hour of the wolf itself. The surrealism of what's real and what's not, not being clearly defined the moments of terror that could be memories or nightmares with equal likelihood. Uh, I sort of mentioned this a little bit already, but done not just with the general tone, but visually presented through a detail-heavy tangibility that sort of juxtaposes the high contrast overexposure of the camera itself that more might typically mark a hallucination. You're watching these things and you go, oh, it looks really bizarre, but there's such focus on the details that make it feel way more grounded than a hallucination might ordinarily. And even more than that, the very opening of the movie is this persona-esque overture with the sound of set building, the crew, Bergman himself. As soon as the movie begins, you're off balance because the constructed nature of the movie and the story is put on display while also existing in the context of the world since they're recording Alma, and not just Liv Ullman. It's such a fascinating way to immerse you in the bizarreness of the Hour of the Wolf as soon as the movie begins, and even almost before it begins. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up, because this is what I was 
wanted to mention before and forgot about. <laughs> the opening, it appeals to me so much. Like I, I, I can't even express like how much I love it <laughs> because in addition to like Southern Gothic and stuff, I'm also a big fan of uh, anything that's metatextual. And the opening of this film, hearing the sets, people on set as they're about to begin recording, it serves two purposes in my eyes. It makes you aware of the artifice, but at the same time, when you're confronted with the text, it also wants you to believe part of it is like documentary. Right. And it's these, this contrast that is created immediately. And then you're given the text that's like, you know, this film is based on the diaries of this artist who disappeared and the interviews we did with his wife who was left behind. And the tone it sets, just like that, like you were saying before the movie even really begins, is so immediately haunting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you're like, okay, so is what I'm watching a documentary? Am I meant to believe that? Am I meant to just fall into the artificial nature of, of this language he's creating. It's very Blair Witch, almost. That's a hundred... When I saw it, because it's been a while since I'd rewatched it, and I was like, this is, you know, I don't think anyone would make the full argument that this is like the origin of down footage, <laughs> but there's something in there about yeah. that, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's... Uh, like Fargo is a good example where you know presents it as a real story, even though it's very clearly artificial. And movies that do that kind of thing, I wonder if this is uh, the first time this this device was used. This lack of definition was discussed in the documentary as well, where Ullman talked about Bergman's disinterest in rehearsal and discussing the script. He discussed with them not needing to know what he thought it meant. They only needed to know what they thought it meant and how to interpret that as a performance, which, again, is extremely lynchy in that way. I'm glad that he said that, and it's not just me, like, making <laughs> this up. Because for me, it's, um, I just did a presentation for my, uh, for my day job, and one of the things I said in it was the types of worlds that appeal to me are those that are filled with a profound sense of mystery, and those that invite the audience to partake in the story. And I think a lot of people historically have viewed cinema as a passive medium because the information is delivered to you. All the things you need to fill out the story are generally given to you. There's not much you need to fill in to participate. But when we look at this group of filmmakers like Bergman and Lynch and uh, whoever else you want to throw in there, their films are participatory. Because you can't watch Hour of the If you're watching Hour of the Wolf and you expect to like walk away just being like, oh, I just watched a movie about this. It's like, you're going to be so fucking disappointed <laughs> that, that it's like not even worth watching. But if you go in with this mindset of like, I'm just watching an experience and I don't need to look up like a cinema journal article about what does the Hour of the Wolf mean? It just means whatever you want it to mean. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's right. I think, though, that Omen nailed a big theme in her interpretation, which she did say, which is that by enabling madness, you can become mad yourself. Johan has his issues from the start, like a deep fear of losing control and a desire for domination that stems from anxiety about masculinity. Meanwhile, Alma does not have the same issues. She's independent mentally, she's engaged with the world, not fearful of it, as we'll see from her first interactions with the old woman, 
Until, that is, she begins to take on some of Johan's traits from spending so much time with him, something that she monkey's paw style wishes for early on, that they'll grow to be indistinguishable. And indeed, the the finger curled back, and she got her wish, and then some... Yeah, it's it's great the way he does it though. It's so it doesn't feel like if this was a contemporary horror movie, I feel like that element of it would be like jammed down your throat, <laughs> and there would be some like device she was holding while she made this speech. But in the moment that she delivers this really romantic sentiment that she says like you know I want to grow old with you, and they say that couples who spend so much time together be begin to look like each other, and I, I hope that we're together so long that. We're both old and wrinkly faces, and we start sharing the same thoughts. And from a young couple who's about to have a baby, that sense of intimate love and to be with each other is so nice. Yeah. And Bergman has this, for all his selfishness, he has a great understanding of what it's like to be with someone else and what it is like to be romantic. But then, so so when Livelman is saying this stuff, you don't take it as like a setup for anything. You take it as just a genuine moment of affection between her and her husband. And then by the end of it, it's like, oh my God, is it actually like horrible to wish to become like someone else? <laughs> yeah, it raises all these questions about like, it's interesting that Liv Ullman talked about it as like enabling madness, but it's also being so insular with someone, which seems ideal in a mm. lot of ways but then not having your own sense of self and losing it to someone else especially when you don't fully know the other person yeah that's horrific <laughs> and i think uh, she nails that yeah to me it, what it really struck me as sort of the opposite side of the coin as solaris which is one of my favorites mm. in terms of that really embracing the terror of the inability to know somebody else and how that reflects on your own inability to know yourself while this is about sort of knowing somebody too well and and losing yourself in the pool of them i think that they do kind of have a really interesting dynamic with each other and uh you know have a, have a lot to say about you know right or wrong have a lot to say about romance and love and and what it means to be in a relationship yeah, absolutely. And I love that the movie, again, I think a modern movie of this type would generally provide a statement on whether or not this was good or bad. Mm -hmm. And I don't think Hour of the Wolf does that. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it's presented as horrific, and but, but the horror of it is up for debate, whether it's because she allowed herself to feel this, or is the horror because of her husband's, like, hidden actions and secrecy that you know is that the the source of it right and that's all part of the you know it's, it's open to audience interpretation there's so few movies that i think in the horror world capture this sense of uh, horror within a relationship you know there's like possession obviously and a movie i was debating talking about was don't look now which i think also captures that horror of marital horror so to speak right but yeah i didn't really think about it uh, before saying this was the movie I wanted to talk about, but now that we're on the subject, it's like, <laughs> that's, it's right there. <laughs> it sure is. 
So the reception to this movie was interesting. Roger Ebert figures audiences were straight up not ready for it, and their unwillingness to engage on Bergman's terms led to it tipping into melodrama that they then jeered. Even though other critics weren't sure what to truly make of it, the New York Times contemporaneously said, Not one of Bergman's great films, but it's unthinkable for anyone seriously interested in movies not to see it. (laughs) Okay. Sounds like a pretty great (laughs) film, then, New York Times. Yeah, it, it does feel ahead of its time in a lot of ways. Like just that, you know, not many people were doing that other than some of the uh, Italian neorealists at the time. But yeah, that, I think that makes sense. That's like an accurate, accurate uh, statement about why audiences <laughs> didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. Bergman himself, though, even gave it kind of a strange reception, too. He said it's, quote, horribly personal, he doesn't know what it's about, and it's unfinished. A, quote, (laughs) unsuccessful attempt in half-spoken sentences. There was a really funny line where an interviewer said, I can't understand what's going on, and Bergman said, me too. You're too close, (laughs) Bergie. That's so funny. Uh, What a guy. He's, I feel like at one minute, he's like, yeah, this is... You know, this is a great masterwork, and the next, he's like, I have no fucking idea what I'm doing. (laughs) But that's every artist. That's right. That's (laughs) right. So let's get into the actual movie. We do get some text setting the movie up. A few years ago, the painter Johann Borg disappeared without a trace from his home on Baltrum in the Frisian Islands. His wife Alma subsequently left me Johann's diary, which she had found among his papers. It's this diary, along with Alma's verbal account, that makes up the basis for the film. As I mentioned, we hear the set construction over the credits before Bergman calls action. Not only all that metatextual stuff is great, but also just very pleasant sonically, in my opinion. <laughs> like, it just sounds nice. We also get this very personal start with the fourth wall break as Alma talks directly to the camera. I find this really interesting because it lets you know that you're watching as much through her eyes as his, since her telling of the story is, as we just saw, the foundation of the movie. Even though people tend to assign the role of protagonist to Johan, it is a little bit more of a blend of their two perspectives. This is something that Bergman realized was true about the movie only towards the end. I found this interesting quote from him where he said, The difficulty with the picture is that I couldn't make up my mind who it was about. Had I made it from her point of view, it would have been very interesting. But no, I made it the wrong way. After it was finished, I tried to turn it over to her. We even reshot some scenes, but it was too late. To see a man who is already mad become crazier is boring. What would have been interesting would have been to see an absolutely sane woman go crazy because she loves the madman she married. She enters his world of unreality, and that infects her. Suddenly she finds out that she is lost, and I understood this only when the picture was finished. And while I do definitely agree with that being a piece of this, I think the movie that we got only arises from that being sort of subconscious. Mm. Because without the emphasis on Johan, it wouldn't be nearly as reflexive. Because, of course, Bergman is Johan. Not just in metaphor, but also huge pieces of his backstory come from Bergman. Like the punishment he'll describe or the reaction to fame. So I think it almost needs to have been a subconscious thing for him to realize that Alma's perspective is what's the anchor for this, while also letting Johan be his own self-insert to bring those issues to the foreground. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think if the film was deliberately trying to to have Alma's point of view from the get-go, 
it would have lost a lot of its magic because it's a question that I wanted to ask you about because it's at the beginning, as you just read, it's, it's they state that the film is made up of Alma's oral account as well as Johan's journals. I took the film to largely be the beginning and the end are Alma's oral accounts, but everything in the middle is Johan's journal. Mm. And so it's filtered through this lens of craziness. Interesting. <laughs> progressive madness and only given short bouts of like reality as as, as uh what's the word? Bookends to mm-hmm. to it. But I wasn't sure if we were supposed to think that the entire account was a mix of both of these uh, perspectives. Yeah, you know, I would say that uh, so I watched it three times in preparation for this. Once because I was like, I gotta, with a movie like this, I can't have my first time be the notes watch. <laughs> so, <laughs> I have to just experience it first. And then in this most recent watch, this third one that I did today, after I had already sat with it and taken notes, I was like, I think that it almost has to be that combination because if she is questioning the madness that she feels. I almost feel like it, it needs to have some sort of demonstration of it. And if, and if it is just so aggressive as to be like, yeah, she's crazy. And, but we just never see it. I definitely would understand that coming from Bergman, but I, (laughs) I think to me, it just works a little bit more cohesively if it is a sort of mix the whole way through. And like, as an audience, we're not meant to know, which moments are hers and which moments are his, aside from being able to uh, maybe through like camera and direction make assumptions about whose point of view we have in each scene. Yeah, Definitely. I think that one of the examples that really made me feel this way is when she first finds the journal and she starts flipping through it and reading it. And the flashbacks do kind of, you're like, is this her imagination of what she's reading? Like the passages Are we literally seeing his perspective in those moments? Is this happening simultaneous to, like, is it not even related to what she's reading? Because we only hear a tiny bit of narration that's like, oh, I was sick the other day. And it's like, okay, then we see the flashback. You go, well, this could just be completely unrelated to what we just heard. Totally, yeah. You're like, is is it just cutting to what he's doing at that moment? (laughs) Or is this a flashback? (laughs) Yeah. Alma, though, says that they moved here as a retreat from the world and Johan's fears. The depiction of their move is interesting. She mentions how pleased they were to see the apple tree was in bloom, which I personally took to reference the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and this being sort of an Eden for them, but an Eden that's immediately sullied by their finding footprints around their house. It's funny because another one of my favorite movies is uh, Antichrist. Oh, yeah. Oh, hell yeah. And I think this movie bears an awful lot of similarities mm-hmm. with Antichrist. And uh, just hearing you you know, say, like, the apple tree in Eden, I think in Antichrist that the cabin they go to is called Eden. Correct, yeah. And it uh, doesn't surprise me that Lars von Trier would like, pay so much homage to Bergman <laughs> like that. Definitely not. They were happy, but then the work wasn't going well, and Johan began to worry, and that led to insomnia and fear of the intruding dark. And finally, we enter the movie proper. That was all her account at the very beginning. And Johan and Alma arrive by boat. They cozy up at this new house where he draws her. 
and time goes on. And while she's still stoked to see him returning home each evening, he sort of doesn't return the affection in, in, in huge, huge swaths of this movie, basically, avoiding her smooches, sort of recoiling at her touch a lot of the times. I find it really interesting how loud the sounds of him stomping around are in in these opening moments. There's also a neat depth of field to the next scene as he sort of anxiously paces and pours himself a drink before showing his new drawings to her. The Flesh Eaters. It's a strange-sounding group, and he fears the Birdman most of all, who he likens to Papagino from the Magic Flute, the first allusion to this work. Papagino is a birdcatcher tasked with leading the hero Prince Tamino to his woman that he loves, but here it's more like the snake leading Adam and Eve astray, since Johan's search is destructive, another sort of tree of good and evil kind of connection, in my opinion. And I also found it interesting that while typically Papagino is wearing plumage as his costume or even part bird himself, in Bergman's own magic flute adaptation, he's distinctly human, which, again, finding the humanity in in these things that might be more otherworldly, I think, is, as you were saying, part and parcel of what Bergman's whole shtick is. So for him to emphasize the humanity of Papagino in these these roles, I find pretty pretty interesting. Yeah, that's all of these scenes, uh, like the scene with the drawings where he's showing them and he pours the drink first and his coldness. For me, these as I was rewatching it, they were a prime example of just how amazing of a director Bergman is. No one else would frame a shot <laughs> like the one where he pours the drink. It's like Liv Ullman's just kind of sitting in the front almost entirely like you know she's got light on her you can't see much else and it's such a tight frame <laughs> max Moncito like comes in just reaches across her face yeah. it's like no one would ever do this because they tell you never do that the madman <laughs> only went and did it <laughs> yes <laughs> but it's so because it's something that you you don't see a lot you're like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and it's so alien. Mm-hmm. It makes Max Fonsito feel so imposing because he's literally imposing himself between the viewer and the actress. And then when it, you know, he goes to to show the drawings of this, uh, what are they called? The cast he calls them. Oh, the flesh eaters. The flesh eaters. It's also amazing because you don't see them. Right. It's just his description, how he feels about each one. You know, we're talking about. I'm talking about Bergman as this great, great artist and director. But again, it's something that no other filmmaker, especially contemporary filmmakers, would do because the rule of show don't tell. Most of this movie is telling instead of showing. (laughs) And there's so many monologues where people are just saying stuff and you don't see it. But I found those moments to be incredibly unsettling because... Bergman also knows that sometimes the things you don't see are the most uncomfortable. Definitely. I would also say that part of what makes it so impressive is that it almost feels like the reverse of what the instinct would be. Where you'd be like, if I can show them the flesh eaters, that's an easy win here. To be like, ooh, it's spooky. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you can like almost see the drawings if it was like a yeah. Blumhouse movie that's yeah. just like, you know, all black and done by some concept artist that they're, you're like, well, those are pretty good drawings, but yeah. I don't know if I'm scared by them. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that that it's, it's very easy to see it going that way. And so for him to have the restraint 
to say, no, it is more scary for us to just sort of detail them or not even detail them because it is very vague descriptions, especially at first. But for him to sort of filter the fear through Johan and let us feel his fear instead of us having to decide ourselves if it's scary or not, I think is really what he's accomplishing there. Yeah, and you also, in addition to his fear, really feel his wife's fear. Yes, she as really a, gets a, like, freaked out. She can't even blow out the candle. <laughs> yeah, she's like, is this what's in my husband's brain? Like, <laughs> that's what he's walking around with? Yeah, and he asks her to stay up with him. In an hour, it will be day. Then I can sleep, he says. But that's a long time when you're exhausted and terrified. Even a minute is an immense amount of time, as he demonstrates, which we talked about, the clock ticking with all its might in the foreground of the mix. Really, I, I, I will definitely mention this again and again. I have mentioned it several times. The sound mixing in this movie, I think, is really, really incredible in terms of when things get so loud and really you feel the anxiety and overpowering nature of them, whether it's the conversation around the dinner table or the ticking of the clock in these moments. It's just such a deft hand in terms of deploying sound effects that would not be terrifying in a traditional context by just turning up the volume on them they become very very frightening yes there's an early very early one too with the wheelbarrow where it squeaks the whole way up as they're bringing their their gear up to the house from Mm -hmm. the shore you know part of it is 80 yards so it's not going to sound natural, but they, he makes it so loud. <laughs> it's like all you can focus on. It's great. And the clock sound, too, yeah, it comes back a few times in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, it's great. In his terror, he asks her to speak, but can't look at her. And this is where she doubles down on her dedication to him and says, I hope we grow old together to the point of sharing the same thoughts and get little dry, wrinkled, identical faces. And this does comfort him. Though possibly in a misery loves company way. <laughs> so <laughs> so he starts to fall asleep and allows her to help him to bed before blowing out the light. The next day, Alma is surprised by an old woman outside. How old, you may ask? Well, it's up for debate. Because she first says 216 before quickly saying, what am I saying? That's crazy. I mean, 76? Is that more right? That's <laughs> so funny. I love it. You know, this is... Even if you ascribe this as non-traditional horror, I think that a lot of people would more, would more readily call it a drama or something like that. But I think that it is also very, very funny in a lot of a lot of moments. <laughs> and I think that this is one of the early like surprising laughs where she like quickly corrects herself in in such a funny delivery. Just really great stuff. I think it can also be unsettling. Because the setup for it is Liv Ullman is like, she just feels this presence yeah. and turns around and it's very eerie. Mm-hmm. And then when she says at 216 years old or whatever it is, it's like you're, as an audience, it's, it's the first supernatural moment you feel right. and you're like, what is that? <laughs> it's so weird. And then she's like, oh no, I'm only 60 or whatever it is. And it's just like this really, really surreal, strange moment that has this like really dark, but very witty undercut to it. Definitely. And it's that needle threading again of, is this real or is it not? Like for her to acknowledge that was a crazy thing to say, obviously I'm not that old. Like 
you go, oh, is this real or is this just an old lady who is maybe letting her mind wander a little bit or something? Yeah. But she's here to pass along some information. There's no way she should know that Johan actually keeps his sketchbook with the flesh eaters hidden under the bed in lieu of the confidence to actually destroy them as he wishes, along with his diary, which she encourages Alma to read. And with some trepidation, Alma finds this is correct and does snoop. The first entry mentions a brief illness Johan is recovering from before recounting the approach of the owner of the island, who invites the couple to dinner and mentions that they're some of Johan's warmest admirers. The second one is him hallucinating his former lover appearing and tempting him. She shows him a mark on her breast, a mark from their previous indiscretion at a party before revealing a threatening letter, since she's married, and as we'll find, this affair caused a huge scandal. Again, I think that the tangibility of this scene is very interesting to me. She comments on the warmth of his hands. She can feel him. That that makes her feel real. And it makes it feel like that surreal midpoint, as well as her being like, oh, it's as if I'm in a dream all afternoon, at, she says, of the excitement that she feels at the thought of seeing him. That makes us go, well, if she can acknowledge that it feels like she's in a dream, are we just seeing that or is it actually a dream? It makes you question yourself at every moment in such an impressive and powerful way. Yeah, I think in that from that moment persists for the rest of the film. Mm hmm. Because, you know, it dips quite a lot more into the dream and surreal territory, but it never fully lets go of the tether to reality. And I think that's one of the, the strengths, is, is that uh, that sense of um, restraint that Bergman had. Which is, you know, maybe it's because nobody was really making movies like this that resulted in it being this way. But mm. so many, uh, it, myself included, like so many storytellers... This, the story goes from real to surreal, and it at some point loses the, the tether. Right. But Bergman never does. <laughs> yeah, it really is something that makes this so distinct and stand out from even among its peers, right? Even among the, the rarefied elite of the people who are functioning on this sort of autorial level, it does help to sort of distinguish him among those people. Yeah, in, in this way, it reminded me of The Lighthouse because I know that Robert Eggers is a huge Bergman fan as well. Yeah. And that's one of the few movies also that feels very much like it's two men who are slowly losing their minds, but Mm -hmm. it's still grounded in their relationship. So I I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Hour of the Wolf was an inspiration for that one. Definitely. And the final uh, sort of flashback segment of this portion is him being chased by the school counselor who, quote, probes people's souls and turns the inside out. There are plenty of anxiety-inducing comments dropped very casually and quickly by him, including the idea of being in an artistic rut and the degradation of the body with age. He also indicates that Johan's work is angry and clarifies the human heart, which they he assumes they share a negative view of, before getting slapped by Johan so hard that he hits the damn ground and stays there. <laughs> the way he lies down too is like <laughs> like nothing can just be normal in the movie he's like gets up and then lies down backwards on a hill mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like yeah not a moment goes by that something is left just as a as a actual human being 
Johan arrives home, and Alma tries to bring him into her life with the details of her accounting, but he simply throws cash at her, and she's holding back tears as he completely ignores her except to say, we're invited to the castle on Friday. This is, in my opinion, one of the most crucial scenes of this movie in terms of sort of establishing sympathy for Alma as this relationship dynamic is so clearly one-sided. You know, we've seen sort of the physical symptoms of that in terms of his pulling back when she reaches out for him, but his, I wouldn't even say unwillingness, but inability to extend even that little bit to her, to the rock that might keep him tethered. You know, I, don't, I also don't think it's a mistake that it's a very domestic thing that she's trying to bring him in on, the, you know, the accounting of their household expenses. It, it really is such a moment of vulnerability from Alma that is slapped away, and, and it's agonizing to watch. Yeah, th- I think that's a really astute point. Like, I, I didn't consider that um, as you did, but I think you're absolutely right. And it's really heartbreaking because it's also really the last moment of the film where you feel them as a couple. I think maybe there's one later where they like she brings up how they never kiss, but after this scene, it gets real weird, <laughs> real quick. <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's as if he, he kind of, he dismisses her reality. And yeah. so she's fully brought on board to his, whether she wants to be or not. And there's also this like reluctant acceptance of, on her behalf, where she's like, okay, this is, this is my life. <laughs> yeah. Friday arrives, and so do they, at the castle, where the introductions are done in this very sweaty and close-up fashion that we were talking about before. <laughs> does, again, this great job of communicating the anxiety of meeting a bunch of new people at once, although one is the professor he slapped the fuck out of, so not all new. (laughs) This uncomfortability, though, persists to dinner, where Johan is very hot under the collar, uh, also communicated through the spinning camera, again, this volume of the chatter. Also, Johan is sort of the butt of the joke. I think that they do a good job of making you feel that, and since we're in his shoes through just the view of the camera, it makes you feel really uncomfortable at this party as well. When they tell this story about an artist being invited over to view his work hung upside down, and he just is, is losing himself in that wine glass, right? He is doing everything he can to not engage with these people. Yeah, it really feels at this moment like you've stepped into his nightmare. Mm-hmm. Where it's people who are supposed to be his admirers become this very sinister group who doesn't take his work they say they take his work seriously but they don't get it they're making fun of him everything's at his expense and yeah it's it's like at no moment do you believe that these are real people right (laughs) but you're also not sure if you're just like in his head because Liv Ullman is there right and she's experiencing it and reacting to it the same way that he is That's right. Veronica Vogler comes up, who is his former lover. He throws back the wine completely and pours another, while the group comments not on him, but on the hate in Alma's eyes. As you say, she is engaging with it, you know, and and that creates this this reality for us as an audience because they're sharing reality. And they finally break for coffee, and because of this tumult that he's feeling— 
he does reach out for Alma, which she responds very, very positively to. It's, it is, again, almost very sad. Yes. It's a, a grim moment where she's very happy about this. I just need to also point out the, <laughs> the coffee break. <laughs> I, I was laughing during the scene because, uh, yeah, it goes from this very tight, intense, spinning camera dinner scene. And then they say dinner or coffee will be served in the library or whatever. And it's literally just like the next room <laughs> and it cuts to it and it's a wide shot. And like, they've all somehow already got their coffees. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's super <laughs> weird. There's just no delay. Uh, it's like, oh, we don't uh, need to see that part. We don't, that's, <laughs> yeah. We're fine. We're fine. Instead, we have to see this quote unquote puppet production of the magic flute, wherein the protagonist, Prince Tamino, alone and fearful that he might fail in his quest to rescue his lady love, Pamina, questions if she is even still alive and will this night ever end. And the chorus retorts, soon, soon, youth, or never. Very ominous. Additionally, this segment of the magic flute is discussed in Bergman's autobiography, wherein he says that the 12 bars contains two questions at life's outer limits. The latter demonstrates Mozart's own existential terror as he begins to succumb to his fatal illness, and the former questions more largely the existence of love. While, rather, while much like the movie itself, many people try to interpret this with Johann as Tamino, I do think it is kind of easy to have Alma represented instead. You know, she is questioning her love and its power to save while watching the night close in around them. And again, this sort of weird blend of perspectives, I think, is what allows you to say, oh, the magic flute really could be applied on both ends of this story. Mm, yeah, the way the f magic flute is presented in this puppet show is also, for the audience, it's like a miniature puppet show, but the player is not a puppet, it's a real man. Right. <laughs> Very strange. Uh, it, it feels a lot like Bride of Frankenstein when he has the like the little people that he like lets out of the jars and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it reminds me of uh, the lady in the radiator and uh, mm -hmm. Eraserhead. And it's just this other level of alienation. But again, it's it's that sense of putting something human onto something that is typically not that we've talked about a couple times now. And you see, I believe you see both of their reactions to it and it's interesting that you brought up like you know, both of their stories could be seen through this character i also love that there are these cuts to the like face of the vampiric looking puppeteer this guy has the most like bella lugosi vibes out of anyone who so wasn't bella lugosi yes <laughs> especially in that moment it's yeah. fucking bella lugosi it's amazing and he says Hey, don't you agree that this kicks ass, Mr. Artist? And Johan has had enough. He rejects the label, saying nothing is evident in his work except a compulsion to keep going, and being singled out as a popular artist has made him feel like a freak, a five-legged calf, and he would just as soon return to obscurity, brought down from any megalomania by the insignificance of art in the face of humanity's troubles." And this is basically a quote from Bergman that he inserted into the movie when asked about his reaction to being a popular artist. So, you know, as we said, it's not just, oh, we're ascribing some reflexivity to this. He is literally putting himself into the movie. 
Yeah, I was going to say, if there, were, there, if there was ever a moment in the history of cinema where the director has put themselves <laughs> and their beliefs into a scene, it is very evidently this one. <laughs> and they all love it. Oh, so brave. What a confession. Here's a toast. <laughs> he feels overwhelmed until Alma breaks through the giggling crowd to rescue him. And out in the fresh air, he feels a little better. And Alma asks for a smooch, saying he's so withholding she can almost count how many times they've kissed. And he goes in to plant one on her. And I love this moment because you can't quite tell if he stops short as they're interrupted or if he actually kisses her because of the shoulder placement blocking the view. You talked earlier about him sort of interceding between the actress and us as an audience. And here it happens again where we voyeuristically are interested in what is happening here, if they are actually kissing or not, what that means for the relationship. And we are denied that in such an interesting way. What a choice by Bergman to not give us that that little bit of closure in either direction. Yeah, you're totally right. And that's, that's his genius as a director, is to understand the image can be... It's often very overt for a viewer, Mm -hmm. and he's able to do things where he makes the audience question, and that's where they become active. Like I was talking about before, it's up to you to decide whether or not they kissed. Right. (laughs) And it's like, there's so few directors who have that, that like minute understanding of visual cinematic language and who, who use it in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And the interruption is the professor telling about the attack, although he seems to leave out who it was. And he says the punch was horrible, but the hate in his eyes was the worst part. (laughs) Before they leave, the mistress of the castle shows them that she has a painting of his directly across from her bed, something very personal that makes him feel uncomfortable, especially as it's a painting of Veronica Vogler, which she describes as, quote, buying a significant piece of your husband to Alma. Not a significant work, but a significant piece. And of course, Peace could be sort of, uh, it could be either definition of it, right? A piece of art versus a piece of Johan. And of course, one might say that they are one in the same in that every piece of art is a piece of the artist as well. Just the, the sort of casualness with the language that again keeps you guessing. It's just remarkable. Yeah, I think often Bergman. At least in the past, he's been considered, you know, the, the greatest scriptwriter, the greatest screenwriter in the history of cinema, one of the greats. And even though this movie is surreal, horrific, and haunting, it's those moments where, where it truly shines how great of a dialogue writer he is. His nuanced understanding of language and how people use it against one another is is just incredible and uh yeah this scene is an example of that and also in this scene once again you're not shown the painting you're just given a feeling and dialogue about how evocative it is and uh you can only imagine you know his former lover that he's painted what this what this must look like especially when you see alma's reaction to it right she's she's quite taken aback by it (laughs) she certainly is And on the way home, she reveals that she read the diary, and she's terrified and sees something evil is about to happen. But if he thinks she's going to run away or let them separate us, he's wrong as hell. And 
there's no doubt that the relationship here is extremely complicated. A lot of people view it strictly as abusive. This moment, to me, indicates otherwise. There's an interesting parallel to Bell Hooks in Analysis, who draws a line between the submission of someone who is victimized and has no choice versus someone who consciously surrenders, where submission is itself a gesture of powerful agency. And Alma's refusal to leave Johan demonstrates a resilience and irrepressible capacity to love, despite the violence that she is facing from him. Bellhook said, to love is to endure, and I think that we're definitely seeing that on display from Alma, especially juxtaposed with Johan making no such declaration, and in fact saying nothing at all. And so we're left with her weeping, because she feels so much love, and isn't getting any of that in return. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how the movie made at this time doesn't depict Alma as a victim, mm-hmm. and it also depicts her with a great sense of agency. And she's clearly the better person in, yeah. this, in this relationship. <laughs> but yeah, her, her unwavering love is a very evident choice that, that she makes. Uh, again, you know, because of the nature of the movie, I don't think it was given enough credit for these kinds of things, and it's probably still not. Yeah. Title card, 47 minutes in. Boom. Oh my god, I fucking love it. I, it's my favorite. It's like... <laughs> Truly king shit right there. Yes. <laughs> and of course it is this incredibly powerful scene that follows it up with Johan watching the match burn down and Alma exhaustedly waiting up with him in the background during what they're unaware is their final night together and a reversal of the image we saw before. Just so much language packed into this image that we're seeing uh, in terms of calling back to the film itself, what it means to have these positions reversed. Uh, I just love, I love the way that this looks. Yeah, I talked a lot about Bergman, but we haven't talked about Sven Nickfist, who was uh, Bergman's cinematographer for the vast majority of his movies. And it just seems like this one, where he pretty much just illuminated with a, a tiny backlight but it's the match and the constant lighting of the match that it, it makes the scene so intimate and there's a warmth mm-hmm. even despite how, how you feel the darkness that's closing in around them. Right. It's a remarkable cinematography. Definitely. And that night feels very cold. And so that warmth feels like the only refuge, right? And since it's a match, it, there's a there's sort of a timer on it. <laughs> <laughs> Johan says, there was a time when night was sleep. Imagine sleeping, waking up without fear. They've kept watch every night until dawn, but this is the toughest hour. And he gives her the backstory of the time that I read at the beginning of the episode. And it does look amazing with the match lighting her eyes and then snuffing out as she realizes who they are from the list. Then if we are up, we are afraid. And he tells her of a punishment that he faced as a child, where he was locked in a closet and they told him a little person lived in there who'd gnaw the toes off of naughty boys. A very dark story in general, although the line, I heard a rattle from the corner and knew my time had come, does make me laugh. It's very, like, <laughs> locked in a kid logic moment kind of thing. Yes. And he climbs a pile of boxes to try and get away before falling and flailing, screaming in terror and begging for forgiveness. It seems notable that he's, quote, saved by the opening of the door and the light streaming in, especially since it winds up being Pyrrhic, 
and the path laid out to forgiveness was a caning. So the light did not actually rescue him, it only gave the illusion of safety. And out of fear, he kowtows to them, asking for as many strokes as possible and kissing the hand of his mother, the mother who put him there in the first place, which is pretty devastating. As I mentioned earlier, this punishment was something Ingmar faced in real life from his childhood with a Lutheran minister for a father. And he said, quote, This happened 40 or 42 years ago, and not just once. It was a ritual. It's amazing I came out of it with my life. And it really is this like one-two punch of psychological terror with the dark and threat of a monster than corporeal punishment to fully break him. It's like just shocking. What a gut-wrenching moment in this movie, especially when so much of Ingmar has been so evident on screen that when you sort of piece it together that this is another self-insert moment for him and that he is trying to work through these awful things that happened to him, it makes you feel very bad for him, but it also is, I think, a really illuminating moment for the power of art as catharsis in terms mm-hmm. of how he is able to escape with his life from this awful reality. Yeah, it is. It seems like you know, this movie was at least an attempt, an attempt for him to have a cathartic experience. Right. But something that's interesting about the scene is, again, he doesn't cut to show a reenactment of it. It is Max von Sydow delivering monologue without any cuts yeah and there's a couple ways i think to look at it where it's you know is it just that that's how bergman knew to express it and he trusted max von Cito to be able to deliver it with enough emotion that the audience would feel it which mm-hmm. he does and it's an incredible performance but part of me also wonders if you know knowing this was a real experience he had if recreating it in a flashback would have been too much for Bergman. Right, or if he felt he might accidentally trivialize it in a way. Yes, yeah. I did read an interesting analysis of the movie from Linda Bunsen and Carla Craig that said, while many of Bergman's movies were attempted revenge against his father, this movie is actually designed to punish the mother that handed him over. Alma is a stand-in for her, thanks to all the Earth Mother symbology that she's surrounded with, and a literal pregnancy, plus an Oedipal fascination. Uh, This is attempting to make her feel guilt about that and and handing him over, and to question her role in Johan's illness, heavy finger quotes on (laughs) Johan. They said, Johan's hallucinatory world is a nightmare version of the dark wardrobe and the castrating little man he was subjected to as a child. And since the mother left him to experience these terrors unprotected and alone, she must now be forced into the world and experience its terrors. I did think it was kind of interesting. There's a ton, a ton of Freudian analysis about Bergman (laughs) and what he puts into his movies. You know, (laughs) say what you will about it. It does seem like he had some, some serious issues that he was working through. I don't know. I just thought it was interesting that it does feel almost like a guilt trip towards Alma, right? Because she's left wondering what she could have done to protect Johan. I don't know. It just it just is an interesting perspective that I wanted to mention. It is, yeah. And it's, it's just another example of how able people are to put different opinions on this movie. Yeah. Usually, like, I hear these theories, and I'm like, well, that sounds like bullshit. But every, <laughs> every one you've mentioned, I'm like, yeah, that sounds pretty reasonable. <laughs> Only the good shit makes it to air, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
the quiet is overwhelming in the night, and Alma muses, it's strange when the sea is completely calm, scary somehow. And it's, as we've sort of talked about, that fear of uncertainty, when the turbulence could start again, is so brutal. And she's holding back tears, thinking of the child in this great darkness, not only in the world, but in Johan. And so she clings to his gesture of affection with fervor as he reaches out and strokes her cheek here. That moment where she describes the silence, like quiet of the ocean, I found to be profoundly haunting. Mm -hmm. Just, I don't know if it was her delivery or the dialogue or everything, but I, I really felt it in that moment and made me think back to you know nights I've spent beside the, the sea and where you do get those lulls of quiet. It, it is quite frightening yeah especially when you don't have a view of the sea because it's like because the world disappeared because mm-hmm. this constant noise is suddenly gone for a little bit yeah and it's it's such a omnipresent noise that it be it fades into the background until it's not there anymore mm-hmm. and and it's again that sort of denial that's the scary part yes yeah exactly johan tells alma another story this time correcting a lie that he was bitten by a snake when it was actually a fucked up little vampire boy that he freaking <laughs> killed while fishing. <laughs> Tossed his ass in the sea. It's like one of the most disturbing moments of like 60s cinema. And <laughs> just, we describe it with such like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's so good. This is, I think, such a great example of that deft hand in terms of balancing the pacing of it being both very quick but also lingering in the right points the contrast is cranked way up you know we talked about the, him not recreating the moment of him in the closet but there is a piece of me that was like could this be almost a representation of that little man that he described sort of a fantasy of revenge against his parents through the murder of their weapon the boy does examine his boot like he's trying to look for some toes, and then he bites him like the 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 story was like, hey, uh, it's about this man who's going who's gonna to bite you and thus castrate you. I don't know. Yeah, it just was like, if I'm trying to look for meaning in these things, it does feel like it could possibly be some kind of connection point there. Yeah, I think absolutely, especially because he brings it up in the same scene. Right. But I, I also think it equally could be him like you know destroying the child inside of himself definitely very metaphorically this is what i love is is and i think we have touched on this is that it's like oh yeah either one of those it's great like i am thrilled <laughs> if, yes. regardless which one of those is the yeah, case. exactly <laughs> it's so open to interpretation it's amazing yeah Alma is shocked by this story, but the clock ticks on, and suddenly there's a knocking at the door, and it's one of the castle crew dropping off a gun for them and a party invite at the castle that Veronica Vogler will be attending. And the gun is ostensibly to protect from small game, but also a weapon by which Johan could remove the tedious constraints of family and even sanity. One thing that I love that we see uh, very much in this moment is the interesting way that the flesh eaters tear open the marriage's vulnerabilities with flattery and menace alike. You know, there is a lot more menace upcoming, but it's sort of cajoling him along into this. It's not just like, oh, we're scary demons. It is very much like 
the idea of taking the easy way out to assuage your anxieties, I think, in a lot of these mm-hmm. moments. And Johan ultimately has to surrender to these manifestations of madness and the freedom that they promise. You know, it's not the idea of sort of always greener on the other side, I think, is very much in effect here where he's he can't stop thinking about what he had and not the love that he has in his in his life right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's a really good point you bring up about the way that these the flesh eaters are depicted. And I think a big reason a lot of people wouldn't consider this a horror movie is because these are just kind of like weird people. Yeah. <laughs> but they're so their sinisterness is so uh, like obscured by their strange jovial and welcoming nature. But to me, it's like scarier than any monster you, you see in any movie because they're like, you get a sense that like, you could have an experience like that with someone mm-hmm. where you f- just feel this danger to them. Yeah. It really reminds me of, again, to compare to Lynch, the scene in Mulholland Drive, like right at the beginning, where after the two elderly people drop off Naomi Watts at the airport, and they just are like in the back of the car with these like rictus <laughs> grins on their faces, and just like looking at each other and like, oh, we dropped another one off, another one for the meat grinder. <laughs> hey, it's just agonizing to watch because it really lingers on it too it's it's crazy great stuff yeah it also reminds me of uh, the mystery man in lost highway mm-hmm. that's he fucking looks, crazy he man. Looks, yeah exactly <laughs> he looks kind of similar to one of the flesh eaters yeah oh yeah and yeah he's you know he's he's quite a lot scarier overtly than uh, the flesh eaters are but it's just that laugh he has that it's very similar to the laugh the flesh eaters have you know, in almost every scene. They're they're laughing at something. Definitely, and that gothic look that he has with the you know white pasted makeup and and the jet black hair and everything very much in line with the flesh eaters. So. Mm-hmm. Alma demands to hear about Veronica, and she uses the diary to hold his feet to the fire as he fingers the gun and tries to rip the book away from her. And she laments her lack of understanding and the fear that she feels. She doesn't want any of this, but here she is because she loves him. And he points the gun and she stares in shock. But this is possibly a hallucination as well, because there's a harsh cut where he's suddenly holding it in a much different way. And she's simply crying again, could go either way where you're like, oh, it might just be like the next moment. Or we could have just been so immersed in his fantasy at that moment that we were seeing what he was thinking and not what he was actually doing. The the breeziness with which he moves past that in terms of like you're left like looking backwards almost. Like, wait, what what happened there? Like I yes. I wanna know. That that is that active consumption of the movie that you're talking about. It's great. And and it's like I took that as a moment that was from the journal, from the diary. Mm from Johan's perspective because I think it's the next scene where one of the flesh eaters like basically confirms that Alma's dead with the gunshot. She mm-hmm. says something along the lines of like, oh, the third one was fatal. Right. And then, you know, later we see that she didn't die. 
Yeah, yeah. He sends her out the door and he shoots suddenly multiple times. And when he darts out the doors, suddenly they're huge and he's running around the castle without seeing him get up there. Seems like he's fully lost to his fears at this point and trapped in a stone castle, read impenetrable fortress with them. And yeah, the older woman that he runs into archly taunts him with the promise of telling him where Veronica is, or at least was five minutes ago. The West Gallery, my dear boy. (laughs) And there he paces the wooden floor as a crow arrives in the window, seemingly laughing at him as well. And the master of the house is suddenly there and says he's welcome. But before he sees Veronica, he should know they've been lovers for years, and he's hella jealous, demanding to hear every detail that evening. This jealousy literally drives him up the wall. He walks up (laughs) to the damn ceiling while hiding his face in shame and sending Johan to her. It is incredible. Cronenberg has talked about this scene and its influence on the fly, which is neat. And it was funny. He said, John Landis said when he visited Bergman's apartment on the island, there was a VHS copy of the fly and he was all proud of himself. I had to laugh. I was like, hell yeah, Cronenberg. He fucking did it, man. (laughs) That's awesome. Amazing. Yeah, that, uh, when I first watched this movie, I watched it, uh, I was a very poor student, and so I watched it on my laptop. My laptop had a CD drive, and I would rent DVDs from the library, and I, it was, I used to watch movies at this point in my life at like three in the morning, Mm -hmm. and I remember watching this scene of him walking up the wall, and it, like, genuinely shook me. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so scared and I don't easily get scared by like any imagery in horror movies anymore but I, I found it to be it was very unexpected and so doubly haunting for, mm-hmm. for that reason right and and for him to react to it and be like not oh the weird thing is that I'm walking up the wall the weird thing is that I'm very ashamed <laughs> like don't look yes. at me um, yes. it's very unsettling for sure yeah, because it's not done as like a creepy, you know, like in, uh, I think of Hereditary, which I love Hereditary, but, you know, the end of it when she's walking on the wall, it's, it's only purpose is to be scary. Right. And here, it, it's not, it, you don't even get the impression. It's meant to be unsettling, but there's so much else going on at the yeah. moment. The purpose <laughs> isn't to scare you. Right. That's ancillary. Yes. And this scene was uh, based on an actual nightmare that had yeah no kidding birdie (laughs) (laughs) really awesome scene where johan determinedly stalks forward towards camera in front of a giant work of art depicting a battle and it only grows to still fit the frame as he continues forward um really feels like this battle raging within him now manifested as part of the castle which doubly inward represents itself might be an external representation of his troubled mind (laughs) it's like all of these things working in tandem to create layers that you know you're trying to keep track of and he is so torn up by them that you feel that same anxiety yes there he finds two more women of the house listening to a conductor play for them, and the younger then, yeah, taunts him not only about Veronica's waiting for him, but also the shooting of Alma, three shots, one of them fatal, and the elder says she's going to remove her hat to hear better, and as she does, removes her face as well, dropping the eyes in their own individual glasses of wine. Stinks of glue, the younger grouses. <laughs> it's such a weird line at that moment, like... 
of all the things it could stink of, mm. it's, uh, it's the like the the glue, not the like flesh face yeah. underneath <laughs> underneath it. No, it's that glue that really gets in your nostrils. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a fucked up scene. I like it a lot. It is nasty. <laughs> like it kind of <laughs> compared to what has been happening, almost feels like it comes out of nowhere. <laughs> You're like, yes. wow, this is really fucking gross. <laughs> Next, the vampiric puppeteer gussies him up and saying that he's not presentable. A beautiful Cupid's bow and sensually full lower lip of makeup. He dabs the bloodshot eyes and does some liner, then powders him pale. Oh, and here's my robe and pajamas. How about some cologne? And he says, now you are yourself and yet not yourself. The ideal requirement for a tryst. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> Amazing line. I love yeah. that. This man leads him past a hallway of pigeons, every castle's got one, to a door before vanishing <laughs> with a cryptic, you see what you want to see, and seemingly growing his own flapping wings. We realize that this is the Birdman, the Papagino that he has been uh, referring to since the beginning, that he's most frightened of. I don't think that it's an accident that he is the most fatherly of the, of the bunch yeah. of flesh eaters. And he is, yeah, really unsettling. No kidding that he's freaky as hell. <laughs> <laughs> I love the moment with the wings because it's, uh, you know, probably no more than a second on screen. And so you can easily miss it. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it makes you question yourself whether or not you actually saw him uh, become a monster for a moment. Right. And in the room, Johan finds what appears to be a corpse on a slab. And he pulls back the sheet to reveal Veronica, but he doesn't let the apparent death stop him, slowly running his hand down the length of her body. And suddenly she wakes, and she laughs, and they smooch passionately. Or did she? And we sit here wondering, if it's not real, what level of unreality is this at? Is she not really awake, but is there, and he's having sex with a corpse? Is this just guilt at still being hung up on the long dead relationship? Like all of these, all of these sort of unsettling questions that rise from just like being like, I don't think this is real. Suddenly it opens up a huge can of worms as to like, what are the implications of that? Yeah, truly climaxes in that scene. Yeah. Especially with uh, what I imagine you're about to describe. <laughs> yes. The the additional laughter from the peanut gallery that shows up, watching gleefully from the side of the room, I love when she runs her hand over his face and smears his makeup, and he looks like the saddest clown you've ever seen. Yes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a powerful moment. Like, just to see him completely undone like that. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the laughter almost feels as if it's coming from the audience. Like, we're all laughing at his plate. Right. And he thanks them for finally crossing the line. The mirror has been shattered, but what do the shards reflect? Really, really powerful line. And one thing that I really love that I actually didn't notice at first, but he mouths more words silently as the score rises and we zoom all the way into his mouth, which fades to the dead child floating just under the surface of the water again. And to lend credence to the idea of this being, you know, his dead inner child and everything, the idea of uh, his, his, his psyche being fractured and sort of having to retreat inward and having nothing left because he killed what would have been there, his, his retreat, 
I think is certainly uh, insinuated by this moment in a way that is very effective and really works for me as one last moment of sort of sympathy for him, despite all the shitty things that he did to sort of bring this on himself. Yeah, in the child, you see them sink mm-hmm. and completely disappear in the water. And it's, you know, the line of what's reflected is like even this uh, child, dead child reflected, like even that's gone. Mm-hmm. Like, is there anything reflected? And suddenly we're back with Alma talking to the camera. And she says, oh yeah, he shot three times, but one just grazed my arm and I fell over in terror, but no big deal. And he (laughs) paced around the house and then ran off. And so she hid the the pistol and herself, then watched him return after just a few minutes, manic and crazed. And I did check that she said just a few minutes, which I thought was a very sort of crucial detail in terms of like everything that we saw was him (laughs) running out into the woods for a few minutes and coming back and scribbling in the diary for several hours while talking to himself. Yeah, I think that just lends more to this dreamlike nature where it's often dreams feel like they've, you know, it's hours go by, but Mm -hmm. you look at the clock and it was only a couple minutes. Right. It just lends to that sense of unreality. And it's late morning, he packs his bags and he leaves, and still in love, Alma follows out of fear that he'll hurt himself. So into the woods they go. I don't remember this part of the musical. They must have left it out. (laughs) (laughs) But he's mostly unresponsive when she finds him, although he does brush his hand against her cheek, which is the one expression of affection we saw a few times before passing out in her arms. And suddenly he's replaced by the flesh eaters who tear him apart. She does witness it, which is important. I think this is an amazing scene, to be quite frank. I love the way it looks. I love that it's just score. I love the weird vibe of these freaks slapping him around and, like, being a crow and cutting him with roses. It's just all really, really working in a way that is unsettling and tragic. It is just so good. And I think it also shows, again, how great of a director he is and how great of a cinematographer Sven Nickvist is. But there's this sense of creativity and old independent cinema like this where they didn't have the ability to you know turn him into a crow so it's just through the the pure art of the edit that they have to create this this believable final nightmare sequence i don't know there's just something so beautiful about old cinema this way that you don't find anymore and i know i sound like you know, old curmudgeon who's just like, <laughs> they don't make them like they used to. But <laughs> You could never make Hour of the Wolf today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's just in terms of filmmaking, technically, yeah, I find the film really inspiring and beautiful and very of its time in the best possible way. Yeah. And Alma is heartbroken, but finds his bag and returns home to the light, which she fingers nervously as the dark falls before asking once more about the ways people can take on the traits of their partner. Did she see them because she tried so hard to love him, or were they there regardless? Could she have saved him if she had loved him less? So the idea of these being inner demons, that she has taken them into herself as well, taken on some of his paranoia, but wondering if she could have pulled him out, if she was less committed to the couple and more committed to her individuality, paradoxically making her better at protecting him is just such a heartbreaking sort of question for her to be left with as like the the sort of 
token of this relationship, right? We don't ever see the child. All we see is these lingering doubts that she has. It's really a gut punch. And and especially because she ties it with, or maybe I should have loved him more, followed him everywhere, but you don't know what to do, right? And, And it just fades to black with the ticking of the clock seeing us off. It's just so... Again, talking about the way it lingers, right? The, the way that it lingers on that final thought and leaves you with it and these doubts. What an amazing outro. And it's like, uh, how many <laughs> how many horror movies uh, or even you know, pseudo-horror movies, whatever, are this like unabashedly fucking philosophical to the <laughs> very last moment and ask questions that are genuinely profound? <laughs> it's like I don't know many movies that ask questions that make me think about my own life and relationships often especially in horror the themes are quite simple and relatable still but it's like oh okay yeah experimenting with science bad <laughs> or you know religious guilt bad right but there's so many moments in in this movie where it makes you question your own relationships. And I, I found, yeah, that to leave it on that question from Alma at the end, and it just lets you sit with it as an audience, uh, perfectly summarizes the kind of films that I love and that feeling where you're just like, well, I guess this is going to stick with me for <laughs> the rest of the day, whether I want it to or not. Absolutely. And now, Lonnie, we've reached the part of the episode where we sum up why this isn't just a good horror movie, but is in fact the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. I think for me, it's what I was just talking about, where it's unabashed about its introspection, and it allows the audience to partake in it. And as a result of the questions it's asking, combined with the imagery and the mixing of dream and reality, that it is, whether you like the movie or not, it is impossible to not, continue thinking about it Mm -hmm. and to me that is in any art form cinema literature painting music that to me is is great art and there aren't many horror movies to me that linger in that sense where it's not just oh i'm scared it's something about this was haunting and it's made me question myself in Mm -hmm. the way that i perceive my relationships, my reality, my own identity, and, you know, leave it to Bergman to be the one to to make that horror movie. Absolutely. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because even just starting on a purely technical level, it's just incredible. I mean, the performances from Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman are top fucking notch. The (laughs) cinematography that we've been admiring the entire time, incredible. The hypnotic quality that is created not just through the things that we've already mentioned, but even manifested by characters themselves. You know, George Reiterberg, incredible as Lindholz, the vampiric puppeteer that we were sort of talking about. This That Lugosi hypnotic quality that he sort of brings to the table is so emblematic of the movie in general in terms of the gothic nature of that hypnotism and, and bringing you in on what it is really talking about. Now, beyond just the technical aspects, there is so much to dig into that is so rewarding. You know, you, you mentioned that it's, it's haunting in a way that lingers. And to me, that is also what is so great about it. And what is so, what so 
awesome about a movie like that is that it's not the kind of thing that you just go, I figured it out. Right. The, the, fact, <laughs> yes. the, the fact that we're able to have 90 minute conversation about what this movie means and ultimately come away with like, oh, there are a ton of things it could mean. And all of them are fantastic is such a representation of why this is such a great movie. If one is into the Freudian analysis of autorial art manifesting one's issues, the movie is positively brimming with fertile ground for it regarding Bergman's relationship with his parents and feelings of sexual inadequacy, the feeling of manipulation as the demons encourage marks of infidelity to inflame their own passions, the idea of Alma and Veronica never appearing together because their Madonna and whore perspective uh, that he held in unison towards his mother, the emasculation that he fell from his father in the way that he's made up at the end before his impotent act that leads to a fear of homosexuality as represented by Herebrand. You know, this is all just like <laughs> things that you could say, none of that is true, and who gives a shit? Like, that's all ancillary to the movie, but it is there to dig into. And the real thing that seals it for me is this. Alma refuses to leave as they walk home from the castle. But when Johan leaves, this frees her to return to the mainland, to live with her son in a world less tortured by ghosts and demons and flesh eaters, even if they only came from Johan's mind. And in this way, it does seem like Bergman is setting himself up to be like, I'm such a temperamental artist that I'd be inept as a father. And thus, the best thing I could do for them is to be absent. And it's done so well that you almost buy it. The whole movie <laughs> is absent father propaganda. And you go, Bergman, you did it again, you son of a bitch! <laughs> it's, it's very true. But it's like, you know, we're talking about it. If this is about his relationship with his own dad, it's like, well, yeah, no wonder a guy who's beaten constantly and, and like made to feel subservient and useless as a kid his idea as an adult would be eh, maybe my kid will be better <laughs> off without a dad <laughs> yeah absolutely and that makes this the best horror movie ever made lonnie i want to thank you so much for coming on the show this was an absolute blast please tell the people where they can find you online where they can check out your work all that jazz yeah thanks before i do that i just want to say thanks for having me george I, and I, I really really appreciate the amount of work you put into these shows and the amount of research you do you're you're really good at it and thank you very much uh, it was an honor to be here and chat about this with you people can find me on social media unfortunately <laughs> they can find me on twitter because i refuse to call it by its new name just at Lonnie Nadler and Instagram is the, the same handle. I'm on Blue Sky for, for now. <laughs> very relatable, very relatable. I will encourage people to check out Nightingale is coming out on early access next week when this movie comes out, or when this movie, when this episode comes out. I'm looking forward to Golgotha Motor Mountain myself very much. I have read the first three issues of The Sickness. They are all wonderful. I highly, highly encourage people to check out that book. Please go do that. Yeah, definitely just check out Lonnie's work. It's really awesome stuff, and you're doing yourself a favor. As far as my plugs, you can find me also sort of on social media in terms of <laughs> I'm a little bit on Instagram and a little bit on Blue Sky. I'm, I am on Letterboxd, if you want to call that social media. You can keep up with what I'm watching besides the things for the show on there, so that's fun. 
And that's all Little Horror PHL. If you're enjoying the show, check out the back catalog. The All kinds of great, great episodes. We have talked about Mulholland Drive. We have talked about Possession with Corinne Halbert, uh, also an amazing comics person. Yes. Jenna Cha was on to talk about Night of the Hunter. So if you want to hear us wax poetic about Southern Gothic for another 90 minutes, <laughs> folks, you got options. Michael DeForge. He was just on to talk about um, The Happening. Re- recent episode, really awesome one. So lots of great comics people in the mix. If you're more into comedy, check out great comedian Hayes Davenport was on to talk about Under the Silver Lake, which is another really awesome movie that sort of ties into these ideas of having a lot going on under the surface, Under the Silver Lake, even. That movie fucking rules. Yeah. It got done so dirty by A24, but it's so good. And brutal. Brutal what, what happened to it, but I think that people sort of stumbling across it and, and finding it in their own way is almost more beneficial to it in in a way than because uh, clearly a24 didn't know what the fuck they were doing with it and you almost go well how, well, how could you market this really yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh and if you're really really enjoying the show and you checked out the back catalog and you're all caught up then check out the patreon where there's all kinds of fun bonus episodes. We just put up the commentary that Mike Mitchell from the Doughboys and I did for Gremlins. We've done bonus episodes that are not specifically about movies, like Branson Reese of Swan Boy fame came on to talk about the 13 best animated horror shorts from the 30s to the 50s. Uh, <laughs> truly, all kinds of crazy shit goes on over there. So check out the Patreon for a bonus episode. It's just five bucks a month and you help keep the show going check that out. Yeah, that's it. Thanks, everyone. Bye.